welcome to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast. Hello and welcome to ICAEW's first podcast on the Bayes White Paper on Restoring Trust in Audit and Corporate Governance. My name is Ian Wright. I work at the ICAEW as Managing Director for Reputation and Influence, and it's my real honour to be able to facilitate this series of podcasts which go into some detail explaining and providing insight as the issues provided in the white paper, whether it's about audit, whether it's about corporate governance, or whether it's about strengthening regulation in corporate reporting. I'm delighted that we've got a stellar panel to help introduce this first podcast, and I'll introduce those people in a moment. But I just want to make sure that people are aware of the massive significance of this white paper. It's vast in size. It's something like 232 pages long, asking 98 questions in terms of a consultation. But more important than the size of the document is the significance of the document. Some of the issues that it's proposing on things like directors' responsibilities, corporate governance and changes to the audit market, certainly in the largest companies in Britain, will have profound changes to the way that corporate Britain does business. It will be looking at things like duties of directors, of the role of the regulator, much more strengthened regulation and a greater degree of intervention than perhaps we've seen in corporate Britain for quite some time. So to discuss some of these key issues, I'm delighted to introduce Cosette Redcheck, who is chair of the Audit Committee and a member of the Board of Trustees for UNICEF UK. Cosette has held a variety of leadership roles operating at the executive level in the UK's largest banks. And the focus of her most recent work involves things like corporate governance, delegation of authority, mediation and financial services model risk management. She founded and leads Permuto Consulting to advise and support others in pursuing these matters. Cosette, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation to join you today. I'm really pleased to introduce Janet Williamson. Janet is Senior Policy Officer at the TUC and leads the TUC's work on corporate governance and capital markets. She's written widely on corporate governance, executive pay, employee share ownership, shareholder engagement and collective bargaining. And Janet's also led the TUC's work promoting voices in corporate governance and is the author of All Aboard, making worker representation on company boards a reality. Janet, welcome and thank you for joining this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And last but by no means least, I'd like to introduce John Bolton. John Bolton works at ICAW and is Director of Technical Policy and is playing a leading part in making sure the ICAW's response to the white paper is comprehensive, is high quality and has engaged comprehensively with our stakeholders. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ian. Glad to be here today. And John, I'd like to start with you, if I may, which is, I've said that we're keen to set the scene when it comes to the white paper. We're keen to outline the origins of this major piece of government work and consultation. And I'd like to ask you first and then go over to to Janet and, and Cosette, How did we get to here? What was the reason for the publication of this white paper in March 2021? What are the origins of it? It's been quite a long journey, Ian. The catalyst for all of this was the failure of Carillion, a FTSE 100 listed company back in 2018. And the thing about the Carillion failure was that 
not only is this a, a very large listed company with many investors, but it also had a large number of employees and it was a key supplier to government. So a clear public interest case and lots of concern in its failure. That was followed shortly after by the failure of BHS, a private company, but one that was a household name and had a very large number of employees. And then shortly after that, the failure of Patisserie Valerie, a well-known retailer, perhaps with less of a public interest profile from the previous two, but nonetheless a household name familiar to, to many people. And in those failures, there was a clear indication that there were issues with the quality of reporting. That was followed by four major reviews into the causes of, of failure, a review into the operation of the regulator of public interest entity reporting and audits for Financial Reporting Council, that was led by Sir John Kingman. There was a review into competition and resilience in the market for statutory audit from the, the CMA. And there was an investigation into the quality and effectiveness of audit by Sir Donald Bryden that looked at a number of issues in the background to audit, including the long-standing audit expectation gap around what the audit product delivers to those who, who use it. In the background to all of that and kind of wrapping around it has been an investigation by the Bayes Select Committee into the future of audit and that really brought to the fore issues around audit effectiveness, resilience in the market, and other issues that the reviews subsequently looked at in, in a great level of detail. So Bayser now brought all of that into focus with the current white paper, which brings together both the recommendations of the Bay Select Committee, but also the recommendations that came from those three reviews into different aspects of from corporate reporting, corporate governance and, and audit. Thanks, John. That's really comprehensive and gives a really strong opener in terms of where we've come from. Janet, could I ask, from your perspective, helping to push TUC policy in corporate governance and capital markets, how have you found the white paper and the underlying issues that John mentioned in terms of corporate failure, audit reform and the resilience, competition and choice within the audit market and the behaviour of directors. What's your view in terms of how we've got to ultimately the publication of this white paper? Well, I think that all of the um, corporate failures that John mentioned, and you know, there's been some other perhaps corporate scandals, it would be a better word than failures necessarily, but you know, Sports Direct a, a good few years ago, Boohoo more recently, you know, Amazon is constantly in and out of the news. The issue of, of workforce interest, the quality of employment, and then obviously the issue of kind of, you know, mass job losses with the failures has been a major concern, I think, with all of those. Um, corporate failures and scandals and of, of course as John has mentioned with Carillion you know thousands and thousands of workers lost their jobs. I think that all of these kind of corporate failures and scandals raise kind of major questions around the priorities I suppose of corporate decision making and in particular the priority given to shareholders in comparison you know to the workforce and other stakeholders and I think have raised questions around the long-term vision for the company that's being built by company directors. There's a lot of discussion at the moment around what's termed company purpose and I think that's very much getting to the question of what are companies for, what are companies about, um, how should they operate, what should their priorities 
minorities be? And I think some of that debate and, you know, acute sort of public concern around how companies do treat their stakeholders, and I think particularly their workforce, um, has also led to this white paper and some of the other actions which have taken place as well. Thanks for that, Jana. Because I would like you to come in with your perspective. So, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, you chair and are member of audit committees. You are providing consultancy advice on things like governance and risk management. From your perspective, is this white paper needed? You know, is there a pressing demand for reform in this space? It's always a good opportunity to revisit important and critical governance themes, which this clearly is. And in my opinion, it, you know, even though it was mentioned earlier that Carillion was a catalyst, there are other things predating Carillion that one could point to that says that this has been brewing for a while and that Carillion perhaps was a tipping point. The impact in the various uh, places where I get to see this issue from different perspectives is the ability to invest and have um, some degree of confidence that the accounts that are being relied upon to make key investment and financial monitoring decisions are sound. And so when there, whenever there is a bankruptcy, in addition to the very real human impact of the loss of labor, there is also an additional effect upon those who have invested in the company taking on faith the um, annual report and accounts and other governance collateral that goes alongside those kinds of decisions. And it just makes, um, it, it makes making those decisions more complex, the need to double and triple check information, and of course, mindful that when annual reports and accounts and other governance papers are prepared, who the audience really is that's relying on that information. So taking stock now to reevaluate all of those things, this seems an appropriate time. And does it do the job, Cosette? So are you, you, you're very well experienced, many years experience in these fields. You've talked about how people rely upon that reporting information, particularly financial statements to make decisions, um, whether to invest in a company, whether to supply that company with goods or services. Do you think that the proposals within this massive white paper will address those key concerns that's come off the back of Carillion? What are the game changes coming out of this white paper? It's interesting because I think a lot of press has been focused on other parts of what's suggested there, notably the role of the big four, the division of auditing versus consulting, and, and, and other things that have been discussed publicly about this and other related papers that have been mentioned previously. And so collectively, um, the nature of the conversation seems to be upon the execution of audit and the role and responsibility of those who undertake that execution. I've not seen as much attention focused on, so who is the audience for these things? What is the true nature of public interest? What is the responsibility that um, the external audit function has towards the public interest and the different audiences for the people who rely upon this information. I'd love to see that part of the conversation brought more into the forefront um, alongside the other themes. Janet, can I sort of push towards you? You mentioned in your opening remarks about company purpose. 
And there's been a, you know, quite an interesting, important debate in recent years about, well, what's a company for? And you can argue that over the last 40 or 50 years, it's been to maximise profits, to maximise returns to the shareholders. It's the shareholder primacy, they are ultimately the owners of a business. And therefore, the returns that flow to them should be the primary consideration. You hinted in your remarks, well, actually, it should be wider than that. And there should be a sense of what is a company for in terms of purpose and the context in which it operates. Could you expand a little bit about that? And crucially, do you think the white paper addresses that important debate? I don't think this issue is caught in the white paper, but let, let me start by just ex expanding on that point more broadly. I mean, at the moment, as you say, um, the UK's corporate governance system is based on, you know, we call it shareholder primacy, and company directors are required by law to um, promote the success of the company for the benefit of shareholders. And although, you know, the law does also require directors to consider the interests of other stakeholder groups, it's very clear that the interests of shareholders are prioritised over those of company stakeholders. Now, that has not been um, successful in terms of delivering companies which are focused upon creating and delivering long-term success that benefits all of their stakeholders. And the reliance on shareholders as a kind of proxy regulator to sort of, you know, to, to, to monitor the behaviour of, of companies through shareholder rights also has not worked. If we go back to sort of Carillion, you know, Carillion, I think, highlights, you know, all of these flaws of corporate governance. Over the years building up to the collapse of Carillion, Carillion was taking on more and more debt, and yet it went on paying out dividends to shareholders until, you know, very shortly before the company collapsed under a weight of debt. Investors seem to have been quite oblivious to the problems going on there. Clearly, the audit uh, w was one factor in that. But equally, had investors become aware more quickly of what was going on, it's very likely that what they would have done is simply sell their shares, which wouldn't have solved any of the problems at Carillion. So we think a much more sort of fundamental reform is required, and that company directors should be required to promote the success of the company, um, the, the long term success of the company for the benefit of all stakeholders. And we think that would deliver more successful companies in the long term, more stable as well. I mean, another thing, if I can make another sort of quick point, is that um, we did research a few years ago, jointly with the High Pay Centre, looking at dividends and returns to shareholders across the whole of the FTSE 100. And we found over, it was between 2014 and 2018, we found over that period that returns to shareholders increased by 56%, while median wages over that period had increased by just 8.8%. And I think, again, you know, shareholder primacy has contributed to the fact that the wage share has fallen significantly in the UK since the 1970s. And yeah, we need a reset of corporate governance and reforming directors' duties is a key part of that. Janet, you talked about executive pay and the pay gap, and that's absent in this white paper. Is that a big black hole? Should there be something about executive pay, or has that issue now been resolved to the satisfaction of stakeholders and wider civic society? 
I don't think executive pay has been resolved. We've got a big problem in this country, not just of ex about executive pay, but around pay gaps more broadly. So, you know, before the pandemic, average real wages in the UK were still lower, you know, in real terms than they were before the financial crisis, whereas executive pay had continued to rise. Um, and that is a real a, a real challenge, a real problem. So too many business models at UK companies are based on a kind of employment model of low pay and insecure work. That I think is an absolutely key challenge for corporate governance. The way the white paper is framed, I think there were opportunities to suggest proposals which would help to address that, but it's not at the heart of the white paper. And in our view, it absolutely should be. So no, I think that challenge remains. You're listening to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast. John, in an earlier answer, Janet mentioned uh, Carillion, and that has been a watershed moment in, a, in the whole fields of audit reform and corporate governance. The capitalist system relies upon very effective checks and balances to provide red flags, to provide those early warning indicators to protect stakeholders, users of financial statements, employees, suppliers. And you could argue that Carillion showed that in many, many instances, those early warning indicators were not lighting up. You know, non-exec directors were maybe not challenging management. Investors were not invested literally in the company in terms of deciding about the business model and what was going on. The external audit arguably was not picking up matters about viability and going concern. Is that a fair summary of some of the weaknesses that we found in that particular case? And does the white paper actually try to address those and strengthen the early warning indicators that we need in order to address the risk of corporate failure? I think the issue here is something quite simple which you know although it it impacts on many different stakeholders and these there are a group of entities that are very important to a large number of stakeholders across the uk economy and beyond and for those entities we're really and i think what we're seeing here from government is a realization that these entities should not fail without warning we should have there are certain entities that are so important we just need a little bit of extra focus but we really understand from their accounting their reporting that these businesses are what the position of those businesses are you can't stop failure government could intervene and prevent company failure but that's not what's on the table here but what we 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 can do is build a stronger regime to ensure that there's proper understanding of the situation of a company and the reporting tells that that picture so i think that objective regardless of what stakeholder you are whether you're an investor whether you're an employee whether you are a creditor whether you are the, the government or perhaps a regulator you kind of all have that same interest in understanding what's going on in the business and having reporting that reflects that so i think that's that's what's at the heart of this it's getting to that clear understanding and as well you certainly don't want that information to be undermined by fraud but that's that's at the heart of this and what you need is a regulator that's targeted on achieving those outcomes so it's easy to look in lots of different places for solutions but there's a simple problem which is that we need trusted reliable reporting and we need a regulator that's focused on those directors duties around part 15 and part 16 of the companies act that are 
relating to that quality reporting and the audit of that information. By having a regulator that's targeted on those things, you therefore get that information that can provide a little bit more of an early warning, a little bit more of a quality understanding of what's going on that's then useful across the economy. Kazek, can I turn to you? John mentioned about the importance of a strong regulator and he also touched upon you know, the central role that directors of a company have. You know, auditors arguably don't make a company fail. It's the company's directors' actions or inactions, the way that they govern and run a company, that can be the absolute key point between success and failure. About 20 years ago in the United States, there was a big corporate failure in respect of Enron. And the whole corporate governance regime changed as a result. People might have heard of Sarbanes-Oxley that came in in the early part of the 21st century that absolutely emphasises a strong regulator, but also the importance of internal controls framework to be able to identify those key processes within a company that can detect things that could put the company at risk of failure or could put the company at risk of material fraud. In your experience in terms of banks, financial services, do you think Sarbanes-Oxley worked? And one of the things that the white paper proposes is some sort of UK equivalent. Could it work over here? In the financial services sector, particularly, banks with an international footprint are no stranger to the controls environment that Sarbanes-Oxley introduced. And I think with regard to internal controls to some extent, um, there has been some benefit in crystallizing the end-to-end flow of processes, the controls around measuring the success or failure of each step in certain processes and the ownership and accountability for each of those things. So I think in terms of that consideration, in that regard, I do think that there has been increased investor confidence and an accountability. And also to pick up on the earlier point about the the company directors and some of the um, requirements that Sarbanes-Oxley introduced in that regard, I think that that has also made uh, some inroads in giving some confidence. However, um, I don't think that it would be appropriate to say that it's been resolving all of the issues that happened with those corporate failures 20 years ago. I think it has laid a foundation and has pushed some progress forward, but it has yet, I think, to address fully all of the inadequacies that arose in those circumstances, particularly within the fraud arena, which is what lies at the heart of so many of these corporate failures. And to the point that was made about company directors and the responsibilities that they have legally and ethically and morally, It's important to note that to some extent, they can only make decisions on the information that they have. They're not employees of the company. And so if the information that they've been given doesn't present the full picture to the extent that they can ask the probing questions of constructive challenge as part of their non-executive director duties, then it just becomes um, a bit of an untenable situation for them to understand the true nature of the activities. And this is where the reliance upon the external auditor comes in, that through their risk-based sampling of what they do to identify fraud, 
that there is a reliance upon them to do that. And then one final point, above and beyond that, particularly here in this country, already there is an expectation and requirement that there be um, fraud detection and prevention arrangements in place and that this gets regularly assessed and monitored for its efficacy. And there may be more in that space that also needs to be revisited. John, can I turn to you? Timing and context is everything. And the world is emerging from the biggest economic shock and public health tragedy for decades, arguably centuries. The UK has just left the European Union and is trying to make sure that that we have a strong, innovative, competitive and prosperous economic model. We don't want to impose additional costs, burdens and responsibilities that could drag our international competitiveness down. Is this the right time for quite a large degree of comprehensive reform in corporate governance? It is the right time. We've had these reviews. There's a clear expectation that action is now needed. There's a clear expectation that the Financial Reporting Council, having been criticised in the Kingman review and establishment of a new regulator suggested and taken forward so far by Bayes in the white paper, it's a clear need that that runs its course. We get an effective new regulator that by itself can command more authority in the marketplace and drive some of those changes that are things companies need to step up to the mark and do for themselves. So a new regulator is absolutely key. It is the right time as well to think about director accountability and some of those benefits which have been seen to be achieved in the United States through Sarbanes-Oxley and through the effectiveness of the SEC, whether those things can be transplanted into the UK to have that debate, to think about outside of the European Union, clearly the the regulatory company law framework has been shaped by EU regulation for many decades now, whether it's time to look at other examples from elsewhere, which can provide the the changes that government is, is seeking. It's also time, I think, to think about broader corporate social responsibility and reporting on sustainability in particular and how we can start moving forward. At the moment, there are questions about the the quality of information on environmental, social and governance metrics in many businesses. And what we really need is something that helps bring businesses along and improve the quality, the rigour of that reporting so we can really understand the impact of business on the environment in particular. So the audit and assurance policy, which is Bayes' way of doing that, is a really encouraging thing to, to see. But having said that, this is alongside a number of other things that the government is is working on. It wants to reset the whole regulatory regime for financial services. This is just one, one part of that. It wants to make UK markets more attractive. It wants to think about national security in inward investment into the UK. It wants to achieve goals around net zero. And it's identified a need Companies house data is very much more well used since it got opened up online, but there are real concerns about the quality and security of that data. So government has a very wide programme of of work in other areas as well as this. And you do have to ask coming out of the pandemic, as you've highlighted, Ian, whether all of that can be achieved and where the priorities need to lie. I'm very conscious of time. We're, We're coming to the end of our time here, but I just want to ask all of the panel a similar question. I started off this podcast by saying, you know, how did we get here? What were the origins of the white paper? The deadline for responses to the white paper is the is early July. We'll then have a 
period in the summer and autumn, arguably the rest of the year, where government considers this. But I'd ask the panel to get their crystal balls out and say, well, what will happen next? Where do you think this agenda of reform in audit and corporate governance will go? Will you provide, you know, through the responses, you know, strong reform that will improve safeguarding, stewardship and corporate governance regime that addresses fraud and failure? Where do you think this goes next, Janet? Well, I think the, the point I'd make is that I do agree with um, with others that audit has a very important role in terms of, you know, making sure that the information that directors and shareholders and all stakeholders have is accurate. But I do think that the reforms need to go further than things that enable us to look back better, look back more accurately, if we are actually kind of going to avoid some of these corporate failures and scandals in the future. So that's why I kind of highlighted the point around directors' duties earlier, which I think is critical. And John has mentioned um, the ESG reporting, and I agree, I think that is critically important. And one thing that we would very much like to see coming out of this reform is better quality reporting on workforce issues. We've had a massive increase in precarious work um, over the last kind of decade or so. Before the pandemic, we estimated that around one in nine of the workforce were employed on some form of inse insecure contract, whether that's zero hours, short hours, you know, employed through an agency or other third party. And this kind of picture of insecure employment is very largely absent from company reports. Companies are not including their use of insecure employment when they write about workforce issues in their reports. So we are very keen that uh, opening up primary legislation in company law as this will do should be used to address that um, and one key thing is that the word employee throughout the Companies Act should be changed to the word workforce which would have the effect of broadening the scope of the reporting requirements in the Companies Act to require companies to report on their whole workforce rather than just directly employed employees. Cosette, what happens next? It's an interesting question. When you think about the objectives of the reform, which are meant to ultimately restore public trust in the way that the UK's largest companies are run, and more importantly, how they're scrutinized, and that through that scrutiny, you give some comfort and confidence in making sure that there is reliable and meaningful information with regard to any company's performance, and that will if, it, if that is there, would empower investors and also uh, the workforce and other stakeholders, whoever they are, to be able to have some confidence relying on the information that's produced. What I think is still um, yet to be really determined is the role that the new regulator will play in holding all of the actors in these activities to account and also what it means um, in terms of the scrutiny to get a little bit more confidence that the information produced really is reliable and meaningful to shareholders, to the workforce, and to all other stakeholders, including that element of public trust. And John, in your experience and insight, what do you think will happen next? Will this result in meaningful change? I think a lot depends on the respect that the regulator is able to command in the market. And that's why the establishment of Argo is so important as a 
as a part of this. A lot of what really matters is about what individual companies, what individual directors, what auditors go off and do. It's not so much about enforcement. I mean, having effective enforcement is very important and Argon needs more powers to be able to do that, but powers that are targeted in the right way, that don't don't stray into areas of the economy that are, are less important to achieving those key goals of ensuring that there's reliable reporting by those most important public interest entities. So getting Arga set up is, is absolutely crucial to this, ensuring that we continue along that route to high quality trusted audits. We're seeing a lot happening already in the market, audit firms stepping up to the mark and increasing focus and scrutiny on really delivering high quality high quality audits but now everyone's got a part to play in this and moving forwards seeing that intent from Bayes to, to go forwards and seeing that that change that we need for setting up of a new regulator the focus on ensuring high quality ESG information and just giving that framework for some of these things to, to happen to enable greater director accountability and to enable the commissioning of that additional information, that additional assurance to provide trust in areas that are really important. There's work to do here and let's hope Bay steps forward. Well, thanks very much. That was an excellent scene setter on really a wide and comprehensive suite of reforms at the heart of our uh, corporate regime. I'd like to thank our panel, Kazette Recek, Janet Williamson and John Bolton for providing that overview. I hope you found that useful, informative and insightful and I hope it attracted your interest to make sure that you listen to our future podcasts on this issue on corporate governance and the role of the regulator and on our audit reform. But thank you again for your time. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 